0: And I remember being invited into school to question my attendance saying, Phil, why don't you come to school? I said, sir, do you mind me asking you a question? He said, sure. Um, I said, how much money are you making? Mm. And my school teacher refused to tell me at the time, but the money I was generating from my car cleaning business was bordering on what a full-time teacher's salary was.
1: We've got some fresh new young
0: talent doing some things that I know you haven't heard before. One, two, three, listen.
1: This week on Being At The we discuss sales and public speaking with Phil M. Jones. Phil is author of three books, which I would highly recommend. In particular, exactly what to say. He has went through the process from salesman to sales director to running his own sales training workshop and building a property empire at the same time. Not only does he have incredible ideas on sales, but has helped and delivered more than 2,500 paid speaking gigs and provides invaluable advice on how to hone your public speaking. Ladies and gents, without further ado, Phil Jones. Phil, thank you very much for, for joining us here and being at the top. Um, we were just talking previously about the Professional Speaking Association, and it's actually just occurred to me that the way that I heard about you was actually through the PSA. You, When you actually become a member, you get to pick three books. I don't know if they do that all over, but in Scotland, you get to pick uh, three books of people that are members and have donated their books to the PSA, and I actually picked up one of yours. And then of course I read it. I, I'll tell you why I liked it actually because I think it's quite important. I, for me as a salesperson, um, like kind of thorough, born and bre- sort of um, I was going to say born and bred, but sales was always my whole professional career has kind of been the direct end of selling. So I've never been much of a reader or study or natural before university and all the rest of it. But I, what really sort of um made me gravitate towards your book was just the simplicity of it. I just really liked how it was so simple, uh, in a very good way, of course. You know, heading's nice and clear, and then it just it explains what it means to you. And you didn't have to go through a war and peace to actually get the message from it. Was that something that was deliberate, or...? I, I, I'm assuming you're talking about exactly what to say. Oh, of course, exactly what to say, yes.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I've learned through the years is that people are really good at buying books. Hmm. They're just not so good at reading them. Um so I wanted to produce a book that distilled, distilled down like a plethora of giant knowledge and experience and put it into a bite-sized piece that was consumable in one sitting. That was my goal. So um, the deal was, could you read it on a train ride? Could you read it on a flight? Could you read it like in the back of a car somewhere? Could you read it while somebody was watching something else on television you didn't want to watch? That was the goal. And I wanted it to be repeatable too, so that people would read it once and come back to it. And um, that's where really the premise came behind it. It was none of the fluff, all of the meat, um, and it was yeah, set up punchline example, set up punchline example was yeah. was repeat through it. And, and I've just learned also that one of the biggest things that people struggle with in the world of sales, in the world of speaking, in the world of influence, leadership, everywhere, is um, finding the right words at the right time.
1: Yeah, yeah, perfect. No. Um, that was me, actually, uh, taking uh, taking this on a sidetrack there. The first thing I wanted to ask, really, um, was, like I said, we have business owners, different fields, you know, some you know later on in life starting businesses, um, and sometimes they feel that their circumstances, for some reason, are different from maybe yours or I's or anybody else that, that does business. But let me ask, what was the kind of initial growing up for you? Because I know you've got an interest, you, you know, since, what, 14, 15 years? You kind of ran your own little business, and it became a very good business. And What's the journey being like? It's the story of, of Phil. Okay.
0: Well, I know your audience is, is people who run local independent businesses and are looking to get started. So I've had a, an entrepreneurial vein in my body since, since as far back as I can remember. Why? Because I like solving problems. And the problem that I had at the time as a kid is I needed to raise myself 45 pounds to be able to buy a purchase pair of trainers that I wanted. And I did the thing that I guess any kid would do at the time, which was I asked Dad, and, um, and Dad said, um, no. So, um, after a few ways around of, of, of me looking to be able to hustle to try and get some extra money, I, I pulled a bit of money together and I walked into Halfords, which was a, uh, a store back in the UK, um, and I bought a bucket, a sponge, set a of car shampoo, and a chamomile. And I started knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them quite politely whether they would be interested in having their cars washed. Some said yes, some said no. Most just asked me how much money I would charge. Mm-hmm. Which, um, which I really quickly realized meant they were remarkably interested, providing my prices were kind of fair. And I did okay with this little car cleaning business, so much so that by the age of 15, I didn't go to school anywhere near as often as I should. And I remember being invited into school to question my attendance, saying, Phil, why don't you come to school? I said, sir, do you mind me asking you a question? And he said, sure. Um, I said, how much money are you making? And my school teacher refused to tell me at the time, but the money I was generating from my car cleaning business was bordering on what a full-time teacher's salary was. Mm. So um, I built a number of small entrepreneurial businesses through my teens, but then I wanted to do the thing that um, made my parents proud. They wanted me to go to university to get a degree. I didn't want to go though. So I did the alternative and I went to get a job uh, and worked on getting a big job, the kind of job you need a degree for. So my early career was, um, I was the youngest ever sales manager for Debenham's department stores. In what fact, age, I. What age was that at, for? That was at 18. Um, and I, I opened, in fact, one of the stores I opened, knowing you're in Glasgow right now, is I opened the store in Edinburgh, in Leith. Wow. That's one of, one of my projects. Um, but I opened stores for those up and down the country. Then I became um, head of sales and sales training and store manager for, for DFS Furniture Group. Then um, from there, I went to become head of retail at Birmingham City Football Club. Then from there, I was head of retail commercial director at Leicester City Football Club. Then from there, I built a property business that turned over £240 million at its peak. And then um, that took us to 2008. 2008 was a little sticky. And there was one thing that I was looking at more than anything. And in that turbulent time when people were going through a recession, particularly small business owners what they were struggling with more than anything in the world wasn't that they didn't have a good product or they weren't good at what they did. It's that they didn't know how to sell stuff. So what I started doing in 2008 was running little workshops through my local business community, helping them to develop sales skills, particularly people who didn't like the idea of being salespeople and many entrepreneurs and new business owners find themselves not realizing that before they get to be good at the thing that they're truly good at sale needs to take place. So that's where my business started in 2008. Since that point in time, I've now worked with over 2 million business professionals around the world, trained on over 56 different countries, five different continents, written six best-selling books, yada, yada, yada. Um, And the beauty in that is, in all the independent businesses that I've met through that process, it's the similarities that outweigh the differences. So when everybody sits there and goes, no, but it's different here, and it's different for me, there are always nuances of difference, for sure. But the commonalities and the things that allow us to be able to create systems, processes, protocols, things that we know that work, and then our individual brilliance to also the exceptions. So that's been kind of my potted history of, of, of stuff that I've done up until right now. Um, and I have huge fun supporting the, the small business community. I think there's nothing better in the world than building something, crafting something, creating it for yourself, and overcoming all the hurdles on the way. And I promise it hasn't been easy. share that story. It sounds like everything's been a bed of roses where it's gone like this. We've hit some
1: giant bumps in the road. Of course. Um, I mean, uh, you mentioned there as a teenager, you had a couple of different entrepreneurial type uh, adventures. Yeah. What what what, what were, And you may, some of them might have been a success. Some of them maybe not. So what what kind of were they?
0: I had I had a landscaping business. I had a mobile DJ business. I had a printing business, which was me just helping people with their printing and subbing it out to somebody else and making a margin in the middle. Um, if I could, oh, we did some events as well. So like some parties that we were selling tickets for, and then being able to make money from that, pulling DJs together, and yeah. All kinds of different things, really. My, my view was, if I could add value to something or create a moment, that added value to somebody else and turn a profit from it, I was involved. Excellent.
1: Oh, and one other thing you mentioned there, and really this is quite a common problem, I think, with uh, people looking to get into business or in small and medium-sized businesses, they do not see themselves as a salesperson. What, what, what do you tell those people or what do you say when you hear that type of comment? And I think there's some fairness in it. I mean, have some fun with me for a second
0: and throw some adjectives at me that would describe a stereotypical salesperson.
1: Yeah, so you've maybe got, what, um, bullish or, you know, double glazing salesperson, things of that nature, car salesman. Yeah. Uh, I, I know these people and, you know, some of them are fantastic, but some of them not so.
0: Right. But the image that conjures up when somebody thinks about a salesperson can quite often be one that they wouldn't want to be associated with themselves. And those words that you reach for wouldn't want to be words that people would be used to describe them. So the association towards what a salesperson is, is potentially not the right thing. Now, if I change something in with you and ask you not to describe a stereotypical salesperson, but to describe a professional salesperson,
1: how do the adjectives now change? What do you oh, reach yeah, for? Well, you've got professionalism, of course. You've got, you know, um, you know well-received in the initial outlook, polite, courteous, yeah, listener, completely different.
0: Yeah, and if people saw that image in you, I'm pretty sure that you'd be okay. I find it fascinating for two reasons. One is that I change one word and you change them all. The other thing that I find remarkably interesting in that entire set of circumstances is that it isn't selling or sales that's the bad thing. It's what people think about. Selling or sales, that's a bad thing. Now, the change that we go through here is we do two things. Firstly, if anybody ever says the words to you that you're a good salesperson, that's not a compliment. It means you've been caught trying to sell something to somebody. We shouldn't chase the compliments for our sales skills. What we should chase by alternative is the word thank you. If what we can do is to reach to get customers to say thank you to us more often as a result of us providing a service or a good and exchanging that for money, We're doing a good job. Thank yous are the thing that we should chase. And the second thing I believe more people should chase or suddenly change is the finish line to their transaction. See, the majority of people in sales and movies like The Wolf of Wall Street, the things, they glamorize this, is they celebrate the day they close the deal. Close the deal, ring the bell, ding, ding, high five, hugging, pop the champagne, whatever it might need to be. This is the beautiful moment. That's not the beautiful moment. The finish line for the transaction is the day the consumer gets the result exceeded. That was the result that was discussed at the point that they were considering choosing. you. Yeah. That's the most important way. And the way I tend to view this is if you were selling wedding dresses, when's the most important day? The big day. Right. Not the day they swipe the card, not the day they leave with the dress. It's the fact that that dress performs on the day and it delivers to the outcome. And when they look at the photos after the big day, they go, I made the right choice. That's what we should look to be able to sell towards in anything that we have as our small business. What also then happens then is the transaction itself is a micro step on the journey as opposed to a magnified moment on the journey. And it means that what we can do is that we can have more empathy with our consumer because we're not saying, please buy from me, please buy from me, please buy from me. We're saying, please wear my dress. It's going to look great. I think it's the right one. You can trust me. The transaction needs to happen in that journey, but it's not the end point. It's just a step on the way.
1: Yeah. So the focus should always be on the waiter uh, the, 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 the on, the afters, if you like, as you know, a speaker we spoke to in a previous podcast has always talked about what happens afterwards is the key thing.
0: Yeah. And there's some simplicity that people can think around with this, particularly when somebody's starting a brand new business. Now, I wrote a, a new book that came out uh, summer of this last year. And um, it's a book called Exactly How to Sell. It's a book that is for the non-sales professional. In fact, I wrote it with entrepreneurs in mind as to how do they go from nothing to something and go out and build their own client base. And one of the things I talk about early on in that book is the imperative nature for you to know the answer to two questions. Two questions every entrepreneur should know, know the answer to. One is, who are the people that you help? And two is, what are the problems that you solve for? Now, I know that sounds like an obvious set of two questions, but almost every entrepreneur I meet, I say, who are the people they help? They're like, um, like everybody. Like, yeah, but who really? Like, like, like yeah, um, uh, local people, like old people. Or like, like, they haven't got clarity over the people are, who they help. And I ask them, what are the problems they solve for them? And they tell me what they do. Well, what I do is I... Um, You know, I do plumbing stuff, and I, uh, you know, you know, I I do stairs and things, and like, and they come back with a with an answer of what they do, not what is the problem they solve for people. So I think I think spending some time to have clarity over that it changes every conversation track you have. Because when somebody asks you what you do, you can start to then think, well, what do I do? Or what I do is I help X achieve Y. Now all of a sudden you've got a saleable message, you've got some clarity on the market, you need need to go fishing for prospects in, and you understand the language you should talk to those prospects in because you stop explaining what it is you do. You start showing empathy and understanding for their problem and you start talking towards your ability to solve it.
1: Yeah, and and a a big part of what we talked about there is the language uh, in terms of what we do versus how we actually help uh, or solve the problem. One thing, um, so first of all, the salesperson, the traditional image that we get, one of the things that I've always been quite passionate about when someone says to me you know what is it you do uh, or, 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 or are you a salesperson I've always been quite you know proactive to try and change the image of the sales of the traditional salesperson as we, as we described earlier and I've always been quite proud to say I am a salesperson but I am a professional do you think then that, though we should actually change the language from calling ourselves a salesperson to something else
0: well, and do the same thing that everybody else has done in every other industry. I mean, if we look through LinkedIn right now, it's like the the transformation of what people's job titles are is to try and embellish it and make it sound what it's not. Um it's becoming almost farcical. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a salesperson. We could perhaps rewrite what the job description is though that goes behind it. Yeah. And, you know, I have a dictionary definition in my mind of what selling really is. And selling is earning the right to make a recommendation. That's what selling is. It's not embellishing a product or service with features and benefits, hoping some of it might stick. It is earning the right to make a recommendation. That means that there must be some form of discovery phase. That means that we must understand what the other person is thinking. What it means is we should never recommend to somebody for them to buy something unless we can say these words first. And the words we should look to be able to say first are the words because of the fact that you said See, because of the fact that you said X, Y, and Z, it's for those reasons we recommend A, B, and C. Now, if I was in lawn care, it's because of the fact that you said that you want to win the garden competition in the spring. It's for those reasons that what we do is that we put down the fertilizer alongside the time when we cut it. Yeah. Right? Try and argue against it. It's because of the fact that you said. So you should be using your consumer's reasons to help them make decisions, which leads to another part of what I see in the job description as a salesperson is that what we really are is professional mind-maker offers. We are there to help people make their mind up. We're there to help people make their decisions. We're here, there to be able to responsibly lead them through the decision-making process. Now I'm having some new windows done here in my office. And, um, for those of that are listening on audio, I've got a bay window behind me. There's three windows. And the guy comes out to come and do the windows professional company, great organization, everything about them was smart, didn't push anything on me, wasn't smart me in any way, was everything I wanted them to be to a point. Now what I now have is I now have a quote from them and I have four different options and I have no idea which one to pick. And this is truthful, right? I have no idea which one to pick. So I've got one that's at, at, at like kind of a lower price, one that's like a few hundred bucks higher than that, one that's like 800 bucks higher than that and one that's like almost double the first price. Um, but nobody's helping me make my mind up. What I've got is a list of features on those options that I do not understand what any of the verbiage means on any of those things because I'm not equipped or an experienced buyer of Windows. Um, I can't make my mind up. So therefore, I'm sat procrastinating, spinning on the spot. If he asked me three questions, then chances are I would probably be able to answer those questions and he'd say, based on what you said, I'd go here, buddy. Yeah. And I'd go, Okay. But instead, I'm stuck having to make this decision on my own without the knowledge and experience of being able to make
1: that decision effectively. And as a result of which, I could probably get this wrong. I think one of the other dangers there is, is that because it is a big decision to me, I'm not too sure whether it is a necessity for you right now over, I would like new windows. So therefore, do you feel that it can sometimes as well go cold and you'll go, I tell you what, maybe I'll deal with it next year.
0: Well, yeah, because what can happen is the indecision can paralyze me and I'm just going to push it off. Like I want them, but there's other parts of projects that are going on that if it doesn't happen in the window, i.e. the window in the window, that's funny, um, then um, that time will pass. And we might do it in three years or five years, like next time we're painting the room or something. So we have to control the moments that we create as entrepreneurs. And what this salesperson should have done separately is – either dropped the quote back to me with a phone call, come back and met me in person, said I've put some numbers together, I've got four options, let me talk you through the differences. Now, in that very conversation, that 20 minutes he gave up, guess what would have happened? I'd have made my mind up, I'd decide. Yeah. Instead, the ball is in my court and what's his only option?
1: If I don't respond promptly to that email, what's his only option? his only option thereafter would be to follow up of some sort, I would imagine. Yeah. Which is a
0: stupid set of words, right? Follow up, chase. There's one thing that everybody doesn't want to be in the world of sales, and that's pushy. Mm. Yeah. almost everybody's process results in them being pushy. See, if what the guy had said is, like, I'm going to need to put some numbers together and just work these calculations through with the suppliers, it's going to take me maybe a day or two to pull those numbers together, I'll have them ready for you by Friday... When's a good time for us to chat on Friday? And locked it down with a time. Is that pushy or professional?
1: To me, that is absolutely professional.
0: Right, and then what could happen is we could have a meaningful, powerful
1: discussion, and he could help me with my decision, which is what I want him to do. That be the story for so many people right now. There wasn't it, and that's really where I was going back to it. Why? That there is a professional salesperson, or what a professional salesperson should have done. Yet so many people, business people, particularly think, well, I don't want to be a salesperson because that's the car salesman or woman or you know double glazing etc. But it's absolutely not. So they should see themselves as that professional that, as you said, follows up but does it in a professional manner. You know, sees it as helping the buyer uh, versus pushing them into a decision. And even ban words like follow up. Like follow up sounds like you're a pest. Yeah. Um,
0: success in selling is all about controlling the conversation and you cannot control a conversation. The minute you click send on an email with a proposal in it or a quotation, you've just given control all the way. So if you're looking to better get through to a point of decision at some point, you always have to plan in where those next checkpoints may well be. Now that next checkpoint might be in six months. It might be in six minutes, but we should st- still always know what's happening next. Yeah. And too many small business owners put themselves in that position that they did all the work to create a genuine opportunity, had a meaningful discussion. And when it got to the point of saying, shall we, or shan't we buy, they abdicated themselves from that process and relied on a document to be able to do their job for them. When actually what everybody wanted is they wanted them to be in the conversation. Why? Because they perceived them to be an expert. So what experts do is they get involved and they give their educated opinion. So you've got to get the education to be able to give your opinion, then you're not pushy.
1: So instead of saying, I now need to follow up, what we are saying here is that it should just be seen as the natural and most professional process to say, I send them to you, post, email, however it may be, and then I'll help you make that, Uh, I'll call you in a couple of days to make that, help you make that decision.
0: No, let's be even more than that, right? So consumers love to be led. What everybody needs to have is a what's hap- what happens next conversation. So once you've got to a point that you've established an opportunity, you've gathered all the information you need to be able to create your price, you're going to say what happens next is. So what happens next on from here is I'm going to go away, run some numbers, pull this together for you in the means of a proposal. Or what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some numbers together and give you three options. What I'm going to do is right, give you some choices, etc. get to a position. That's going to take me a day or two. So today, here we are on Friday. That means that by Wednesday of next week, we should have all the information that we need. So Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday next week, when's a good day for us to talk, where I can lead you through that information and help you understand what you might want to do next? Sample. Yeah, Thursday's good for me. Morning or afternoon, when suits you best? Well, mornings are better. Well, somewhere like 10.30 a.m. 10.30 a.m. would be great. Awesome. Well, we'll speak at 10.30 a.m. I'll shoot you an email first thing that morning so you have the same document in front of you as I do. And what we do is we'll have a discussion, lead you through, and make sure all your questions are answered. Yeah, right. It's not follow-up. It's not I'm going to chuck something out in the wind and then I'm going to chase it. It's I'm going to put the checkpoints into place. And we're both going to agree because we're all grown-ups here and we understood that the game was you said you wanted to buy. I said I wanted to sell. Right? So we need to get to a point of are we or aren't we going to dance?
1: One of the things I'm I'm picking up on hugely and obviously because – of the the nature of your book, the one that I read, um, but about language, yeah, uh, the magic words and how important is, you know, you, you, one of the th- things that I was just watching um, in our preparation for this was how important you know, for example, you te- you do not call it a pitch, you call it a presentation. And when you're then, you know, language that we use as is, uh, is, is sort of, uh, well, as human beings, like our own business people, but how important is that? And what are some of the ones that, you know, what are some of your favourites, you know, like presentation, uh, pitches, uh, presentation instead of pitch? and
0: Well, why don't we give a couple of quick ones is say, don't say this, say this instead, right? Let's just do a couple of quick ones here. Is word that I'd love to have banned. It's a four-letter word. It starts with C and it's not the one you're thinking. Um, four-letter C word is the word cost. When people say, how much does this cost? The word cost itself has a painful connotation with it. It cost me, it hurt. And the cost is money out and nothing back. My belief is that if somebody's giving you money towards a good or a service, then you're going to provide some returns on that. If you put money into something and that thing brings returns, what's that thing called? That's an investment. Right? So I'd I'd ask people to invest in my service. I'd say your investment level here is, boom, and put a number on that. Now, certainly, I'd always remove the word cost. Cost for investment is a nice switch. If it doesn't fit with your products or service, it can be the price. It can definitely be the price, but it's never the cost. Difference between those two things. What else would be a good thing to look at differences? In day-to-day conversation and vocabulary, the word but is costing you. So if you're in a conversation with a prospect or you're having a discussion with somebody who's interested in what you're about and you keep saying, yeah, but what you're really saying is I disagree with you. what you're really saying is everything you just said was nonsense.
1: Yeah.
0: And what we've done is we've created conflict with the word, but I mean, think about what happens with maybe kids in your life and you're trying to give them some advice towards something and their immediate comeback is, yeah, but like you want to clip them around the ear or you want to just say, shut up and listen to me. It's, it's rude. So make sure you don't fall into that. Swap the word, but for, and now everything is true. Now, another quick win is a um, subtle little change that can bring all of the power. Now, when people are talking to um, their consumers, their customers about buying from them, they often act in the conditional state. They utilize the word if. If you choose us, then this will happen. Is if this then happens, then this will be the outcome. Now, the trouble is when I use the word if, I create a decision in your mind's eye as to whether I fall left or whether I fall right. Absolutely. I'm going to make a choice. It's 50, 50 swap the word if for when, and I've created an absolute true and I've brought it into the present tense. I've made it now. So take a simple example. I have a cup of coffee here right now. and I'm going to say to myself, if I'm not dead careful, I'm going to spill this over. I'm going to leave a dirty stain on my notepad in front of me. Swap the word to when it's, you know, when I turn around in a second, I'm going to knock that coffee over. It's going to leave a dirty stain. I've now seen the stain.
1: Yeah.
0: Which has made me dead careful, which has made me want to be more precious about this cup of coffee in my hand. So when creates absolute, if creates a condition. So we've got the use of cost, we've got the use of uh, but, we've got the use of if. Let's jump to two others around price. One is the word expensive. Expensive is something that really isn't an adjective that should be actively used to describe anything we're asking somebody to buy. But we can swap the word expensive for premium, and now it becomes aspirational as opposed to something that feels gluttonous. Another kind of switch, switch is the word cheap. Now, cheap could be essential or it could be basic, but it should never be the word cheap. Cheap and anything was never a fitting strap line for a successful business. So just some simple word choices and some wordplay that we can look at. But I think I want to bring that round to a key point, which is um, when is the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say?
1: Good question.
0: It's right in the very moment in which you're saying it, right? Yet yeah, almost all of our conversations that we have in our business are somewhere bordering on repetitive. And if they're not repetitive, they're predictable. So this means that what we can do is that we can build ourselves sequences of words that support our conversations, giving us a fair advantage when we go into conversations with other people. Because the truth is, the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it.
1: Yeah.
0: And in almost every business, they get taught to create systems, right? You're going to create systems, you're going to create templates, you're going to create processes and procedures, because those systems allow you to be able to run with more freedom. Whether that system is a templated Word document that you copy and paste and change the parts you need, whether that system is an elongated multi-step process, still a system, we can create systems in our conversational tracks too, if you take the time to be able to consider them. Now, I'm not talking about scripts, I'm talking about systems. And um, people get fearful of scripts, crazy fearful of scripts. And I find that fascinating. And when I ask people what it is that they get frightened about with scripts, it's, oh, man, they, um sounds false. It sounds canned. Or it sounds like I'm reading. or Robotic, um, is, robotic is quite one yeah. you hear of quite often, yeah. Yeah, robotic. Or it's, it just doesn't feel like me. And, and all those things are true. But I ask those people to consider a few different things. And one thing I ask them to consider is, have they ever seen a movie and cried?
1: Mm.
0: It was an actor reading a script. Yeah. But what the actor chose to do was to learn and embody the script. They decided to be able to deliver that and perform the script. They didn't read the script. They didn't even know the script. They were the script. And we all have scripts and programs running in our mind all the time. Now what the actor had to be was somebody else. That's a masterful skill. They had to convey somebody else's message. All I ask anybody to do in my audience is is to convey their message. It doesn't mean the scripts are bad. It means somebody else's script is bad. Yeah. So there's nothing saying what we can't do is that we cannot read a script. Well, we should learn a script, and that script should be one that we wrote ourselves. We can then practice it over time. What happens, though, is when you know your words, you grow in confidence. People think a script ties me up. If I deliver an eight-hour sales presentation to an audience, then guess what happens? Is There was once a script to that me knowing the script means any curveball anybody throws me, I have the freedom to be able to go down the rabbit hole, I have the freedom to be able to deal with the challenge and the exception, and the confidence to know where do I come back to on my scripts. So interestingly enough, where people think scripts tie them up, the opposite is true. Scripts actually give us freedom, confidence, and control.
1: It's, um, it's actually a really relevant point, uh, that one, Phil, for myself right now in the sense that, Having these conversations with a lot of uh, very successful people in their own right, uh, particularly people that do a lot of speaking gigs, and one of the things that I've noticed um, the difference between, say, someone that is maybe so someone like myself is looking to do more speaking gigs versus someone that do it and make a living out of it and and charge uh, handsomely for it. Um, the is, is that there is that sort of they've learned that process now so much and so they've delivered it so many times that it just becomes embodied in who they are so my core business is about financial and legal service products that's where i came from and 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 sitting in front of a client and i have no fear that any question they could ask me surrounding that i would just know so naturally because i've delivered it so many times and that'd be the one big difference for someone in sales or even looking to do more speaking or presentations is you have to practice it and deliver it and, you know, script out and know it inside out and do it so many times that it becomes so natural. And really to me, obviously there is some other elements of a successful person in terms of speaking and, and maybe someone that's not so, you know, the content has to be good. You, mean, you know, if the, if the content of it's not great, then it's probably not going to work. But the big difference is there is that the people who I've spoken to recently, who do a lot of stage seminars and keynotes, is that they've practised their pitch, their presentation, their keynote. They've delivered it so many times and it's so natural now. But it all started from something where they've no doubt sat down and wrote it in a piece of paper, wrote it word for word, and then it's evolved over time. Yeah, it has. And
0: I'm also going to add another another piece to that, is There are lots of similarities in speaking to the world of music, huge number of similarities. I've started to look for inspiration in my work outside of my work. So I now look towards stand-up comedians, I look towards musicians, I look towards dancers and other performers to try and say, well, what can I learn from those guys to help up my game? And when you then get right back to where did it all start with these people, they started in a place of play. Mm. It never started with saying I had to be perfect. So, you know, if you are wanting to be a musician, well, you've got to jam in your bedroom for a while, right? You've got to go and hustle some gigs. You've got to go and do some karaoke nights. You've got to go and do some open mic performances. You've got to go and just get your feet wet. So it makes sense to be able to make something work on paper, but don't make it perfect on paper until you've performed it X number of times. So I'll deliver speeches and I've delivered over what? 2,500 paid presentations. I did one yesterday and this little improv piece came out as a result of a piece of audience interaction. Now I could have never written that piece, Mm. but now that came out and it landed, I'm like, I'm keeping that. So it starts to evolve and it starts to come in, but the core and the heart of the message stays the same. Bring it back towards how a musician performs. Our goal should be that we can deliver our message regardless of audience. And the thing that keeps it real, keeps it raw, keeps it authentic is the audience always changes. So it's always a brand new presentation because the variables have always changed. Think about the best band that you've ever seen—is they might play their greatest hit, but Bon Jovi can play "Living on a Prayer" to fifty thousand people in an audience arena tour. He could obviously play it to six people sat around a campfire with an acoustic guitar. It's the same song; it's a completely different moment. Got you. That's where we should be able to look to be able to get with our content, and that's where our skill and professionalism comes in—is that we can judge the environment. To say how do we choose to be able to tailor our presentation to suit the moment that we're we're faced with and different energies in different rooms will create different sets of moments and when it comes to building presentations i'd encourage you to build it in bits like lego or duplo so it isn't a speech with an arc in its entirety that is word perfect it is made up like a 45 minute keynote for me is made up of 11 bits so an opening and a close. I'm going to pick them. They're going to be bold choices. What I'm then going to do is to sequence a series of my stories that sit together. And as my stories have grown over a period of time, my bits, I can tell at different lengths. You know, I have a 90 second version of that point in story. I have a five minute version of that point in story. I have an eight minute version of that. So I start to be able to then build my speech. Like I would build a piece of Lego by saying, how do I combine these pieces together? And by creating your content in bits, then what you have is the ability to customize to any size, just like a cabinet maker in a kitchen company could make any kitchen in any size, but really all they have is 65 different pieces.
1: Yeah. And that actually is a very interesting point there because, um, what became, what was more natural to me, I'd done a keynote just a a week ago and what was much more natural to me was a slightly longer form, you know, 45 minutes, even 30 minutes uh, and, and longer, but I had a 10 minute slot and, i learned significant amounts of how drastic i should have uh, on hindsight changed my presentation to, to suit that that time frame audience was the same as normal but the time the only difference was the time and well let's put it this way phil there was a lot of lessons learned uh, that that particular <laughs> evening um, short talks are, short talks are hard to give yeah. short articles are hard to write short books are hard to
0: write you know it's it, it's cutting and editing yet still being polished and professional that is a challenge and my my biggest fee in 2018 this year was for a 12-minute talk
1: interesting out of all the ones you've done and that was the biggest one you've been na- naturally people think well it's only 10 minutes but um well let, let me just um because I want to come on to this kind of the, the public speaking or presenting in front of people the do's and the don'ts But to to, to stay on the sales part of it, first of all, for this person, whether they see themselves as a business, a salesperson or not, a sales professional or anything else, what in your experience in in delivering the the, the training courses that you have done, what do the people at the very top of the, you know, the, the real professionals, the people that are earning significantly higher amounts of money and having better relationships with their clients, what are they doing? The, the vast majority in the kind of middle of the road are not doing. Uh,
0: the one point that stands out more than most is really, really, really quite empowering because anybody can do it. They do the work. They don't make excuses. They, they just get through it. Yeah they have good days and they have bad days but they make more contacts than other people they care longer they do the work behind the work they show up earlier they keep great notes they never forget a prospect they remain focused and diligent on the thing that they're going to do what they are though is they're also strategic in their prospecting when um there's another piece that I teach in exactly how to sell and I have a big, strong belief that you cannot prospect more than 18 people at any one period of time. I think anything more than 18 is, is, is too many. And, and lots of people say to me, I've got this giant list of like 100 people I'm working on. You can't be working on 100 people. No one person can be working on 100 people effectively. You might have 100 people that you spammed an email to or 100 people that you spoke to once, but you can't be working 100 people. 18 is the most number. And there's a principle that I teach and it's been modeled out from the success principles that I've seen by lots of other great salespeople. And it's a way that I teach people to be devilishly productive and it's to have 18 prospects. The reason I call it devilishly productive is that you have six prospects here, six prospects here and six prospects here. So the six, six, six makes you devilishly productive, six in each area. Now, each of those areas gets defined as this. The first six is like your low hanging fruit, your easy first yeses, your quick transactions, the pieces of like instant business that maybe came as leads of inquiries off your website. Maybe they were existing clients that are looking for being able to have a follow-up transaction. But they're the ones that are close to the finish line. They're the ones that are your kind of core bread and butter business. And you need those because then they can work through quickly. The next six... Are your perfect target market, your sweet spot, the one that you would be looking to go after. But it might be slower and require a little bit more work in decision-making, but you've got to get proactively after those groups. And then the third six is like your platinum, your dream clients, the, the ones that if you secured one of these, it would be your birthday, you'd fly home, not drive home, right? It would be that kind of good. Now, if you have six prospects in each of those categories and you're always working those six, you'll build a wonderful sales pipeline. Because here's what happens is when somebody says yes, they fall out of your 666 and now they're a client and you bring somebody else new into play. When somebody says no, thank you. Guess what happens? You move them off your list. You bring somebody else into play. You're always working. I expect the six at the bottom to rotate at a quicker rate, the six in the middle to be a little slower than that. And the six at the top, they might change names once every blue moon. Yet what happens is, is you're always making steps towards it. What it means then from a sales management point of view, my entire coaching protocol towards people is, tell me about your magic 18, what's your next step? That's it. That's the entire track of the conversation. Because what we're now doing is we're now making moves. We're helping people progress through decisions. That's what great salespeople at the top do. They are nudging. They have balls in play and they're working those balls through the decision-making process. They're never waiting, wishing, hoping. They are working to be able to help people make change, and they also accept that failure is part of the game.
1: Yeah, and can move on uh, if something doesn't work out for them, can move on without any impact on them. Yeah, and and they learn from it. You know, it's, it's it's not like, oh, never mind, like, screw you.
0: It's, that one didn't work, what did I learn? Okay, I learned X, Y, and Z, great, remember that for next time, move on next. Like, I'm not a big believer in that every no is one step closer to a yes. I think that as a mindset sucks because um, if you care about the work that you do, every no really does hurt. Taking an attitude of, ah, forget them. I think is derogatory to your industry as a whole. I think saying that when somebody says, no, what can I learn? Was it me or was it them? Okay. It was them. They were not right for me. Okay. I can live with that. Was it me? What did I do differently? What can I learn? Oh, damn. Yeah, I should have. I could have. Why didn't I? Great. Okay, I can learn from that. I can bring it into next time. That keeps you on this room for continued improvement. Which leads me to another mindset that I think everybody in business should have. And I think not having this mindset is sabotaging many people's success. If I ask an audience full of people if they wanted to be good at something, better at something, or do their best at something, what do you think everybody picks?
1: Do their best, I would
0: imagine. Yeah, which is the worst piece of advice ever. Because how many times have you ever said to yourself, I tried my best? Yeah. And known it was lies. Complete pack of lies. Because you didn't try your best, you knew you had more to give. You even said to other people, Don't worry, you tried your best. And inside you're like, No, you didn't. There's always a little bit more. Yeah. Now there were probably a point in time in your life where you said to yourself, I'm trying my best. And all the time you thought that, you couldn't get past it. Maybe it was something even as trivial as tying your shoelaces. Can't do this. I'm trying my best. Can't do this. I'm trying my best. Mom, I'm trying my best. Right? It wasn't until you said, how do I get to be better at this? And you flipped into that mindset that you made the progress to then surpass it. So the focus should always be on better, not best. Not what's my best result. What's my better result? What that then does, it means that you're on a continual journey of permanent self-improvement, never reaching the destination. But what then does happen is that you soon surpass moments in time that you would have once called your best and look back upon it. Cause I'm guessing right now that the shoelaces thing, you've got that down. I'm managing, I'm managing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so everybody, entrepreneurs, salespeople around the world, focus on better. Let's say it was leaders, business leaders, have your people focus on better. And then make that improvement something that becomes uh, fluid with momentum.
1: And what happens is you wake up 18 months down the track thinking, damn, we're awesome. Absolutely. You know, again, and I don't know why it seems to work this way, but it's a, it's a huge um, part in kind of coming off some of the questions I had. But it's, it's similar to the terminology when we named the podcast uh, being at the top. I had a real difficulty actually agreeing to that there because I do believe that none of us are ever at the top. But um, we decided to roll with it. But there is that element of it's a constant for me, a daily reminder about being at the top that that always, always is a, well, it should always be a growing and moving part versus a final destination. So it's interesting that that mindset is one that we should all as business people adopt. Uh, and let, let, let's build this into something so people can see
0: why perhaps you've called it um, at the top is it's an analogy that goes back to a mountain climbing. And being at the top means two things. It means that you've got the experience of the journey. Can't buy that. Can't read about it in a book. Can't watch it in a movie. You can only live it. So the reason for getting towards the top is to be able to experience the journey. The second big thing is when you're at the top, you get the prize and the prize is the view. Cause the view from the top is um, really quite liberating because you get the panorama, you get to look down, you get to look around, you get to see everything and that gives you wisdom. It also probably fuels where is there another mountain? that I want to get after that could be higher, could be more challenging because what I like to be able to do is to be able to challenge myself. So it is the top of that mountain. It is not the top,
1: period. Yeah, absolutely. And there is always a a bigger uh, mountain to climb. Um, Well, while we're on that subject then about the going from sales to presentations, can I then just pick your brains about the public speaking? Absolutely. So first of all, is there a difference between doing a presentation and in front of you know a large number of people versus getting paid for doing a, a keynote or a presentation or you know something of, of that nature there's two different elements is there a difference and what are they there's huge differences
0: but the similarity in the differences is what is the point of the presentation now if you're standing up as an entrepreneur to be able to deliver a speech to a room full of entrepreneurs, then what is the purpose of you being? You have a highly leveraged period of time. So whether it's 12 minutes, three minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, that moment of time where you're delivering a one to many is one of the most leveraged activities that you have in your business. It's a really critical point. So if you don't know the purpose and the point of what you're looking to be able to deliver in that session, you could quite easily miss. Now, if what I am is a business owner speaking to a room of business owners to be able to grow the credibility of my business, I probably need to decide three to five objectives for that speech ahead of time. Nobody's going to give me my brief. So my objective may well be to create more awareness and opportunity um, within that audience about my area of expertise to win the credibility that within my marketplace, we are the number one choice. To create a first step, easy first yes opportunity for people in that audience to be able to step towards our product and service should they have a need. But most importantly, my assumption ahead of time is that most people in this audience right now do not have an immediate need. So what I want to do is to create a portable story that they remember that allows them to be able to grow my reputation past this room and share that experience with other people to grow my reputation to win more inbound inquiries. So that's me just riffing off the top of my head to say, what might I define as a purpose for a speech if that speech is about business development. Now, if I'm delivering a speech to a paying audience because a client has invited me in to deliver a keynote to address their national sales force at their national sales meeting to help kick them off, I need to know what's the theme for the conference? What is it they're looking to try to be able to deliver over that period of time? What are the biggest challenges those salespeople face in their mind right now? If there was one thing that you would be looking to gain from my speech, that would mean that your people would think, do, or act differently as a result of our time together, what would that one thing be? Like, i got to get my brief. Because without defining a brief for the moment, it doesn't matter how good you were, it's did you do the job you were there to do? And this is the mistake that almost everybody makes when they speak, is they think it's about them. There's not a single speech I've ever delivered that's about me. My goal when I deliver a speech isn't for somebody to say, damn, Phil, you were great. My goal when I deliver a speech is for somebody to say, damn, I feel great. Right? So it's in service to an audience, which comes back around to a point that I made earlier. Who are the people that you serve and what are the problems that you solve for? If I don't have clarity of those two things, then I don't have the ability or the right to be able to serve. Them. So who are the people that I serve? Now, the one thing about a presentation or a speech is, there is there's hard lines around that. What every audience is looking for is show me that you know me. So uh, do the work, get to be able to understand them, get to be able to say, well, who are these people? Well, what can I do to put myself in their shoes for a while so I can deliver a presentation to them that talks in their language? See, as I get to know them, I get to understand their problems. As I get to understand their problems, I get to understand how my skills and experience can help them overcome those problems. Without having that, I don't have a lens to be able to deliver my speech through. And I think that lens is something that's missing from 95% of presentations. They think it's about what did I want to share, not what do they need to hear. Let, let, let me simplify that, is, is a fact will only tell, whereas a story will always sell. Mm-hmm. So um, if you have points that you want to make, turn those points into stories. Yeah. Those stories want to be real, they want to be authentic, and they want to deliver on brief. If you want a structure to be able to build a presentation that's effective, Firstly, it needs a great opening. There's about 17 different ways that you can open a speech, but the opening is the most critical point. The worst way to open is thank you very much for being here today, or thank you for listening, or thank you for sharing your time. That's about the worst way that you could open. If you need to start by opening by giving them your name, then you have to be set up right with an introduction. So you don't want to be my name is, and here's where I'm from. And a speech starts when a speech starts, so start. One of the best ways to start and how I often start is I start with an anecdotal story. I start with an anecdotal story that within the first 35 seconds then delivers a rhetorical question, which then gets an answer from the audience, which then gets engagement. So from the get go, they're on my page. So that becomes an important point. If you then want to build an arc in a story, in in a speech, here is a simple rhythm. Tell a story, make a point, make a point, tell a story, tell a story, make a point, make a point, tell a story, tell a story, make a point, make a point, tell a story. So it's not tell a story, make a point, tell a story, make a point, tell a story, make a point, tell a story, make a point. Tell a story, make a point, make a point, tell a story. That rhythm becomes a nice way to be able to look and it punctuates the stories and the points and it keeps them connected and it allows people to say, I got a lot from that. Because what we did is we took a speech and we carved it into chapters and verses in a way that made it memorable um finish big on outcome the outcome in terms of a finish big should be anchored back towards what was the fundamental number one purpose of you being there make sure that you finish big on that given piece a couple of other things that make a speech more memorable is how you deliver take voice lessons understand the imperativeness of being able to speak in a rhythm Learn how to be able to project, deliver to the back of the room, ban filler words, things like um, such as things like, you know, basically. Throw those all away. Stand freaking still. Move with purpose. Stop swinging your legs around. Understand what you're going to do with your hands. Your hands are props, your hands are tools. You are the presentation. Your PowerPoint is not the presentation. Your handout is not the presentation. People can listen. They can watch. They can hear. They can see. They can't do all those same things at the same time. So if you want them to listen to you, don't distract them with a video. If you want them to be able to watch you, don't have them seeing a GIF in the corner on the screen. If you want them to see something, don't talk over what you're asking them to read. So have people come with you that way around. Um, And a final point for me just on that, given that this is super high level, is is have fun up there. Mm. They'll see if you're having fun. And if you're having fun, they'll have fun with you. If they see that you're struggling, they won't be listening to you. They'll be worried about you.
1: Excellent. What, what talking about having fun? What was the the, the 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 very first keynote you done in terms of audience size versus the largest one you've done? Uh, so are you asking smallest to largest, or are you asking first to yeah. last? Yeah, smallest to largest. What was the yeah? What is this? But well, going back, if you think going back to the very first time you delivered something, was it a large audience, or did you have to sort of hone your craft at the smaller gigs versus I, what you're maybe getting paid to do now? I, I,
0: I don't know if I can answer that question as cleanly as you've asked the question, because I've been doing this nearly, nearly 20 years in some guys. Um, and I was delivering keynotes before I even knew that it was called a keynote. It was, I just had to deliver an address towards my team when I was opening a new store and I would be stood at the top of the escalators in a department store with 120 staff down on the floor below, and I was getting them fired up for a store opening. I didn't know that that was a keynote address. I just thought I was doing my job. Um, when we start stepping into the paid space, I, I i guess I had a few different things. Is I built a workshop-led business when I started this business 10 years ago that then became a coaching, consulting, training business that sat behind those workshops. But to sell those workshops, I would deliver speeches at other people's events. That's where I started. So whether it was a free of charge, the ones? Well, they were kind of free of charge. So they weren't free. They were my marketing activity. So what I would do is I would actively pick the events that I knew had an audience full of my people, which were independent business owners. And I had a one-day workshop program that was £97 and then £147 and then £229, etc. It price changed over time. But it started at £97 a workshop. ticket. Those speeches were with the purpose of me selling my workshop. So I wrote a different speech. My speech title at the time was 737 ways to seriously skyrocket your sales. So I left 130 ways behind, right? Even the speech title on purpose was geared up to say that there was more behind this. Typically in those windows, I'd have a 30 minute window to deliver a speech. So I would deliver at chamber of commerce events, I'd deliver a um, kind of big business networking events. And my audience size was typically in the region of maybe 65 to 150 people. That was kind of the sweet spot of those. And my goal from that would be to get 6, 8, 10 core workshop prospects per time. What I'd then do is I'd then have a full day seminar. My goal in that was to have 12 to 15 people in it. That was a full day event. That was eight hours worth of content. Now the difference between running those two sets of skills is the 30 minute speech keeps you on time. It keeps you on point, keeps you on purpose. The full day workshop teaches you how to engage. It teaches you how to build energy. It teaches you how to be able to keep something positive over a long period of time. It teaches you how to deal with heckles. It creates further pieces of content. So that was then useful. But then this started to change in my career over a period of time when companies in the workshop would say, can you come in and deliver this to just our team? Can you do it in half a day, not a full day? Can you do it in 90 minutes, not a full day? So these kind of questions then start to come about. So what did we do? We recrafted, we reconjured in a different way, and now I have got audiences of two hundred. Biggest keynote address that I've given is to about thirty five hundred people in a, in a large arena. That was a ninety minute keynote, um, and uh, I do dozens of events a year in and around the twelve to fifteen hundred person space. I do dozens in and around the four to six hundred space. Um, And there's differences between those events, and the biggest difference is production value. So once you get over a thousand people, you're typically bigger stages, bigger lighting, bigger music system. The energy in the room is remarkably different. In fact, you don't need to bring the energy; you need to maintain the energy. Different game. So the the, yeah, the the work we need to do is different. Yeah, can we shut that door, please? Sorry, guys, just had a giant piece of noise come from doing construction outside. In case anybody wondered what just happened. So, um, yeah, that, that's the difference in size of those events you need to maintain. In the smaller events, you've got to bring the energy up. Normally, you've got like an ugly hotel carpet that is ridiculously distracting. You have the smallest mediocre stage or zero stage at all. Your microphone AV system isn't as good as you would have hoped it to have been. Um, and that's where you learn to be able to hone your craft. I think the ability to be a professional speaker is to know and understand your audience ahead of time. Um, and to have the ability to work in all of those different environments, the word on the street, I get back from any of my other successful keynote speaking counterparts is they hate the smaller events. They love the bigger events Mm. and they hate the smaller events because of the intimacy. The thing with a big event, 45 minute keynote, giant audience, you're intelligent entertainment, show up, show up, then leave. Right? So, and the, and the barrier between you and the audience is a real barrier. The smaller events, the barrier is non-existent. You are far more vulnerable, you're far more at risk in terms of credibility. The audience has a bigger voice. The audience can interrupt you at any period of time that, that it's, it's challenging. And, and let, let's bring it back to, um, to some of the other worlds. Think about the world of stand-up comedy. Now, if you've got an arena tour and people have come to come and see you and there is 1,500 people in the audience to go see Frankie Boyle in Glasgow... Everybody's decided this dude's gonna be funny before he's even started. They've already liked the dude because that's why they bought the ticket. The guy stands on stage, says hello, the audience erupts in laughter. It's the most hilarious thing they've heard all day because they're in that frame of mind. That's what happens at the bigger events. It's been decided you're going to be brilliant before you even get to be able to do anything. Yet there was a period of time that I'm sure a comedian of that nature worked through dozens upon dozens upon dozens of open mics, dusty little dingy comedy clubs and they bombed a number of times they got various levels of abuse they went through that they worked through that pain barrier and they came out the other side with the experience of the journey which means that when people laugh when he says hello I think he earned it
1: on that note that's probably a very good way to end but finally just ask in terms of the the title uh, being at the top if you were going to give and I know it might be hard to do it in one way, one sort of piece of advice but one piece of advice that you would give someone to get to that top of their industry of their field or to get to the very top of where they are
0: okay um, understand that success leaves clues and if there is somewhere you want to get to go study those clues that have been laid down by the people who walked those tracks before you and when I say study them I don't mean sit in awe of them I don't mean become a fanboy for them I mean, study it and understand what it was that they went through. Compare the whole of you with the whole of them. Go understand, dig beneath the surface and find out what they've done that you haven't done. And you'll probably realize that um, you're missing a lot of parts. Um, So success leaves clues. If you want to get after it, choose the people who you want to study their success story from and then lift from it the truth, not the surface part of it um, that you might see on the mainstream media. Get beneath the surface. And, And... even if you want to just play it that, I got a fun little fact that popped up, um, on a friend of mine's article yesterday, which was that the, um, the Beatles, um, wrote, produced, recorded and put out somewhere in the region of 250 independent music tracks in a six year window of their career. And, And I think that level of prolific nature, like, like many people don't think that that's what, what they did. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they, they think that what they did is they created one great album and it blew up. Like they they think that they did a handful of gigs and people said, I like this. And before they knew it, they were playing arenas, um, get beneath the surface of the industries that you want to be able to excel in and learn what's true and then model on that truth. And all of a sudden you realize it, it isn't that difficult to figure out how they got there. It might be difficult to do the work
1: Mm
0: -hmm. to, to, to be able to get through it. But the, the, the paths have already been written for us
1: perfect so i appreciate that and i appreciate you you giving us all the detail there it's uh, it's been a privilege so thanks very much for that it's for the love of the shit that i do when and i'll give my last breath to prove it see i'm a vet when it comes to this rap love